This is an ABC podcast. Are you a bird lover? Do you know your kookaburras from your kingfishers, your currawongs from your crows? Perhaps you're one of the many who discovered the delights of bird watching during the pandemic lockdowns. I'm Paul Barclay, and in this Big Ideas, Birds of a Feather, the enduring allure of our feathered friends. Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land I'm on and in all the places across Australia where you're listening and pay my respect to elders past and present. Like them or loathe them, birds play a crucial role in our ecosystem, whether it's as pollinators, dispersing seeds or even pest controllers. Despite their significant contribution, many species in Australia face significant threats, from climate change and urban development for starters. In today's talk from the University of New South Wales Centre for Ideas, three different perspectives on bird appreciation and conservation. Sean Dooley, writer, conservationist and bird watcher, ecologist Richard Kingsford and author Charlotte McConaughey. Anne Jones, presenter of ABC RN's What the Dark Nature Show, hosts the discussion. We begin with Sean Dooley on his lifelong love of birds. I was one of those kids that loved nature. And when I was four or five, I'd collect the... The Weet-Bix had the um, African Wildlife Series and I'd get the cards with a lion or a giraffe. And growing up in suburban Melbourne, I pretty soon realised I wasn't seeing that wildlife in suburban Melbourne and after I got in trouble for digging up the, the gravel driveway looking for dinosaur bones, I, was, <laughs> I kind of gave up on nature for a, a few years at five. I thought, that's it, there, there's nothing out there for me. But fortunately, I lived in an area in, in Melbourne called Seaford, which is next to a suburb called Frankston and people might have heard of Frankston even up here. So Frankston is like the shorthand lazy stand-up comedians, when they want to talk about bogan places, they always make jokes about Frankston. Well, to put it in context, people in Frankston made Frankston jokes about people who lived in Seaford. So, <laughs> but we had an advantage. We had a wetland, Seaford Swamp, next to my school, and it was where my eyes were opened. The, uh, the scales or the feathers fell off my eyes. In grade five, I had a teacher who had a pair of binoculars for every kid in, in the class. And he would take us down and we would jump over the tiger snakes and sit on the fence and watch the birds. And he had slideshows of all the birds. And I was hooked within about a week uh, of, of that. And it's been birds ever since. It's funny, isn't it? That, that, that impact of that one person yes. at the right moment in your life. Absolutely. And it was, the motivation wasn't so noble for me. He was, this was 1979 and apparently corporal punishment was still allowed in our school and he, among all the naughty kids like my brother, told me that he was the teacher that hurt the most when he gave you the strap. So I thought, as I was going into that year, I thought, he likes birds. If I like birds, <laughs> he won't give me the strap. So I had an ulterior motive, but really within a week I was absolutely hooked. So that isn't still what motivates you in your career, I hope. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> The intersection between um, between bondage and discipline and, and bird watching is it's not very uh, there's not much <laughs> very little crossover. <laughs> what about you, Richard? Has it always been water birds for you? Or uh, no, I'm a bit like Sean. I really got into it 
when I was about six and I had a grandmother who was really into watching and ticking off birds. I was born in Kenya and we used to go and visit her and I, I remember her talking about this paradise flycatcher, which um, Sean and others might know, but it's this amazing brown bird with the male's got this incredibly long tail and they're just beautiful. And, and it was just probably that time of my life, I thought this is being in Africa where we had the lions and the elephants. <laughs> and and I, was, I, I liked those too, but I did really like the birds. And then I came to Australia when I was about 12 and I was just not very happy because I thought there's no lions and there are no elephants. <laughs> and, but then I really sort of realised just how incredible the birds were in Australia. And it was then a sort of connection between a love of nature and wanting to look after it and, and thinking what trajectory we're on and the ability to and passion to think, well, birds might be a window into how we should be looking after this planet. And that's actually sort of part of what you do with your fiction writing as well, isn't it, Charlotte? It's not just about birds. It's not just about romance. It's like... <laughs> It's about care for the planet as well. Why was it that you chose birds or a bird? Migrations, the novel, kind of came to me um, when I was travelling around and I was on this sort of, I guess it was a little bit of a migration of my own. I was searching for place and belonging and roots and history, I think as we all do when we're sort of growing up. And, and I just remember seeing so many kind of gorgeous birds and, and being really fixated on where had they been, what had they seen, where were they going and, and kind of longing to go on that journey and that's where the, the character of, of Franny came into play. She's this sort of very restless soul who is migratory like the birds and she's on this kind of epic journey to follow the last flock of the Arctic terns in the world because the story is set in the near future and during the peak of the extinction crisis when all the animals really are either gone or the last of their kind. And it just, I think, this bird kind of became a real metaphor for grit and determination and courage and what it takes to survive the difficulty of this world. Um, and I know that my kind of love of birds started a long time ago. I was trying to work it out where it kind of, I could trace it back to. And, and it was... I think it was actually at a bird show, a bird of prey show, at like a medieval festival or something. <laughs> you know those bird shows. And I just, I was really little. I fell in love with them. They were so sort of powerful and graceful. And, but I also remember feeling incredibly conflicted about the fact that they were in cages and that they lived sort of tethered to these humans. And, and I you know, very big kind of complex feelings for a child, feeling like, well, I, I didn't know if they were safer in captivity or if they, you know, should be free. And I think I kind of subconsciously brought that grappling into, into my work as a writer and into migrations because it sort of explores the idea, well, the argument between whether or not we are a destructive species or a destructive force on the world and, and we should just kind of remain separate from the natural world to protect it, or the other side, which is more optimistic, which is that we, are, we can be a force for nurturing and for protecting and helping to grow. 
So I think it, I can trace that back to that weird medieval festival. <laughs> <laughs> I say that thing about migrating birds, uh, that's something that I've discovered in my work at BirdLife, that, that how they, they really do connect us. And there was this fantastic project called the Overwintering Project, which was a, a group of printmakers who... Uh, from about, I think about 27 different countries were making prints inspired by the migratory shorebirds that fly from Russia and Alaska all the way down the East Asian Australasian flyway to through China, Korea and all through these Southeast Asian countries to Australia and New Zealand. And to see that the, these people from different cultures making prints about mm. those birds and, and how they inspired them, like that's just an added bonus with birds is that their movement inspires us, their freedom and and the fact that these these birds that they're almost the the epitome of showing us how we are all connected. When you've got a bird like your Arctic tern that travels forty thousand kilometers a year, uh, linking the polar regions, it, it sort of really it hammers home that idea that we are in one world and we're all connected somehow. I mean one of the frustrations I think Australia's odd in that it does have lots of these birds that move a lot Mm. but they're not predictable so I mean we do have some that are but like the the wading birds that go up but unlike the sort of northern hemisphere where everything sort of gets out of the winter and hits south we're sort of driven by exactly what's happening in the inland and and despite sort of decades of working on water birds and other people working on water birds, we still don't have the foggiest. Mm. How these animals are able to get, you know, from down near Adelaide into Lake Eyre or way up north and, and their ability to know when it's on, because when it's on in the inland, they're incredibly productive ecosystems. But these animals are both able to know where to go plus being able to sort of really sense the timing. So you can't just sort of head off. And there's some lovely snippets about some of these birds being able to do hundreds of kilometre reconnaissance flights just to check out if there's something out there that's worth going to. Wow. Mm. I guess if they're, if they're so hard to predict, it must be difficult to predict where you need to focus your energies on... Um, you know, conserving. It is, but I mean, and Anne was talking about the aerial survey. The wonderful thing about that is we, we're, we've been doing it for so long. We've gone through the, the booms and the busts and many of them. So you're starting to get a real sense of where these animals are. You don't really know how they get there mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and how quickly they get there. Mm-hmm. But we, we're getting a much better idea of the ecology of the system and then which are the hot spots. And, and, and I think that's a big challenge for not just bird conservation but conservation more generally how do we hang on to those really important areas and they might just be important not just be important because there are lots of birds there but there might be others that are important because they breed there so it's actually thinking about the whole life history of these animals it's it's really important which is difficult when they're so transitory and unpredictable can i get just a uh, hands up if you know about richard's survey just so I know what level we've got to explain. What okay, okay, we need to explain a little bit, right? So basically, you get in a tiny little plane with a pilot and there's you looking out one window and another counter looking out another window and you fly at about, like, 
you know, 12 to 25 metres. I don't know. It's like <laughs> it felt like we had our butts in the water, <laughs> right, uh, across basically all of the major wetlands going from north to south. Yes, yeah, so we do about a third of the continent and we, there are, we call them survey bands, but they're imaginary lines drawn from the Northern Territory border across to the Queensland coast. And the first one goes from the Whitsundays to Mount Isa. The next one is from drop down there and across to Rockhampton. And the most southerly one is south of Melbourne across Phillip Island. So we are, have essentially been counting the same surveys and wetlands, up to 2,000 wetlands across that, those imaginary 30-kilometre-wide survey bands, the rivers and the wetlands. For This will be our 40th year. And we do fly low, but not all the time. It's only when we're at, at a wetland and um, we rely on the plane going over for the birds to fly up because we've got to... We've got, we're like race callers, basically. We've got these little tape recorders. We've tried all the technology. None, none of it can work as well as the human eye in terms of seeing and identifying up to 50 and estimating their numbers up to 50 different species that sort of come out like a, um, as if you're in a powerboat and the waves are coming out on either side. And inside the plane, of course, all you can hear is the engine roar, but they've got these little dictaphones and it's like 50 chestnut teal, 40 pelicans. <laughs> like, and it's just these little mumblings of um, birds out the window while you're trying not to throw up. Because of when you're that low, it, you know, the plane's going like this and then the water and then they bank when they need to look because there was pelicans nesting back there. And, you know, like it's, it's hectic. But we had though, an impression on you. <laughs> <laughs> those 40 years, though, I mean, over which time we've had massive events like the millennium drought... Give us the sketch of the changes that you've seen over the 40 years. Well, we've had about a 70% decline in waterbed numbers across that, those, those decades. Um, interestingly, most of that decline is happening in the Murray-Darling Basin, which is a really important river wetland system, as everybody knows, but highly contested in terms of water and Someone tried to convince me once that waterbirds didn't need water, so <laughs> I felt that was a bit hard to justify. But that, that's the sort of contentious space it's in because, you know, we need those flows to go down the rivers and get out onto the floodplains before the birds will breed. And so we know absolutely that these birds will not breed unless there's a flood. So you need a flood in the Macquarie Marshes or you need a flood in Menindee Lakes or on the Paru. And that's a big pulse of water coming down that system. And then because these birds are programmed essentially to go through courtship when there's lots of food, produce their young and then get it all right, although sometimes they get it wrong and they'll, you know, they'll collapse, the, the colony can collapse from not enough food, so... But a, a lot of people argue a, against what you're saying and say, oh, Australia is always the, the land of drought and flooding rains. Mostly politicians. Yes. <laughs> they, they love Dorothy McKellar, don't they? Um, <laughs> the, but you're saying there's a decline, but that's in spite of the, the different conditions we've had? Like yes, and, and some people may have heard me describe it this way, but... I think the analogy of a, instead of a bouncing Super Bowl that we had in the past, 
where we've got a sort of bouncing tennis ball. So we're getting those bounces, but they're just not as high as they used to be. And that is really the impact of humanity and what we're doing to our natural resources, our water, our forests. It's, it's playing out, as Charlotte said, it, you know, in terms of the sixth greatest extinction. And, and that is because there are so many of us and what we want, what we need and what we want, the food and the fibre and the energy, is all coming from that environment out there. I promised my first-year students that I'd don't ever want to depress them when I give them my first-year course. But I, I would like to say, I also, like Charlotte, I'm, I'm an optimist, and I think there's great things we can do as well, and we are doing, and, and that's exciting. Despite having a lot of drain on resources, there's some wonderful things happening in conservation. Oh, well, please tell us one so we can drag ourselves <laughs> up out of there. Well, I mean, the water analogy, environmental flows in the Murray-Darling Basin, there aren't many other river systems where governments have bought back water to go back into the environment. And that's a great thing. It's challenging because there's not enough water there and we haven't quite worked out who's taking water all the time. So there's all of those hairs on it, but it is exciting that we're doing those sorts of things. Some of the, you mentioned some of the rewilding that we're doing is really exciting because we're bringing back animals that were locally extinct. We're working out better ways of controlling cats and foxes. And, you know, there's, there's some really exciting things. Both of the uh, men here, you're both obsessive bird watchers, right? In different ways. What do you think is the main difference between what you get up to and what Richard gets up to? I don't know Sean that well. <laughs> Actually, I don't think there is a lot of difference in between, say, the, the recreational bird watching the, uh, and the twitching, which is, for those who don't know, twitches are... Um, often maligned in the, the bird watching community is because they're the hardcore bird watchers who go out and chase rare, rarities, new birds for their list, those sorts of things. But I've been out on a, a boat with a bunch of twitchers off Wollongong looking for albatross and other seabirds. And that I was there trying to break the record for seeing the most birds in a year and I was hoping that thing, rare seabirds from New Zealand like a Cook's petrel might fly over. Or, and so I was there thinking, um, here am I being very, you know, selfish. I'm just wanting to see a bird to tick off. And then the researcher who was on that vessel, a seabird researcher, was catching wedge-tailed shearwaters and weighing them and, and banding them and things like that. And I noticed towards the end of the day he'd caught like 91 and he suddenly got obsessed with, we have to catch 100. I haven't caught 100 <laughs> in a day. And I was sitting there thinking, who's the competitive bloke here now? And, and it really was. He was celebrating catching 100 birds for his research the same way I would have seen. I was celebrating seeing 100 different species in a day. So There's I think... not that much difference. No, no, I think, I, I think not. I, I also have joked in the past that, that bird watching uh, and bird study, it's like hunting for wimps. It's, it's all like you're going out into the wild, but instead of going out to bag an animal to shoot it or kill it, uh, you're there confronting it, but with nothing more than a camera or, or binocular lens. And instead of taking it home to the fire, you're just putting a tick in your book or your field <laughs> and then going, yes, I've, I've just seen an Arctic turn. And then and that's it. But it, it, I think in some ways that one of the attractions of birds for people is that, that hunting element, mm. that that 
collection element at least. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, you know, a couple of years back, I mean, it's before the pandemic a couple of years back, so more than a couple <laughs> of years, uh, there was a really pop popularity with the Pokemon Go game where people were wandering around with their phones trying to find those animals and I kept on looking at them and think, well, why don't you like bird watching? <laughs> you know, because it's exactly the same thing. You're looking for these rare creatures that are, you know, phenomenally colourful or silly and have apparently magical powers to people like me anyway. <laughs> I think the other thing that's, that's really interesting at the moment and makes me very optimistic is how you're actually coming, the professional scientists are relying so much more on you know, people like Sean, the citizen scientists, who aren't just putting their notes in their notebook, they're putting it into the apps like mm. eBird. Um, I mean, I had a PhD student who wrote his whole PhD on citizen science observations and was able to sort of show what sort of birds are the right sort of birds in cities around the world as opposed to the ones that don't do so well in cities. So I think the, that's a really exciting thing that's happening and allows everybody to be involved. And it's not just with birds. There's a whole range of different citizen science things that allows more eyes more recordings, more understanding of what's happening in the environment. Mm. Have you managed to avoid the listing um, bug? Yeah, I'm definitely, I wouldn't call myself a bird watcher. I'm a bird lover, yeah. but my enthusiasm far outweighs my knowledge. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you and me both. I think that's a good way to be, though, because everything's yeah. exciting. <laughs> you know, when you know, when you don't know quite as much, everything's exciting. And I know that you also do a bird watching week for citizen science, don't you, Sean? Yes, well, uh, interestingly, I don't know if your student, Richard, is, was involved in the paper that's just out that really shows that connection that a bunch of researchers, including one of my colleagues from BirdLife Australia, have just published an article about Australian urban birds and looking at the trends in urban birds going back to the 1950s in some cases. And all of that data comes from citizen scientists, from either the eBird app or BirdLife Australia's bird data app and that means we've got decades of what people have been seeing and it's really fascinating to see we, we can have educated guesses as scientists but we actually have these repeat surveys and that's the really key thing that it's not just going out once and getting on a plane and and uh, monitoring the birds that are there. It's going year on year and seeing what's happening. And there is definitely, this paper shows, there's a massive shift in the bird populations of our cities. And we always think of nature as starting at the gates of a national park, but we are part of an environment wherever we are. And birds, one of the great things about them is that they manifest and express that environment and tell us what that, what's happening in that environment far easier than, than so many other animals because they're everywhere. And the, the trends we're seeing in, in urban birds is really fascinating. This paper's saying, you know, we often think of the cities as nothing but filled with introduced birds, but that's actually not the case anymore. Uh, and we're seeing a lot of the introduced birds are actually disappearing from our cities. The, the sparrow, it, particularly this paper showed that the sparrow numbers in Sydney have just 
absolutely declined, plummeted in the last 20 years or so. And other birds are coming in, and they're, they're native birds, like the nectar-feeding birds, like the rainbow lorikeets and the noisy miners. And they're responding to what we do in, in our landscape. And we, since the 70s, really, we've been planting native trees, flowering gums, those sorts of things that provide nectar that these native birds can feed on. The only trouble is these birds are doing so well and they're so aggressive is that they're actually becoming a problem for smaller birds like sparrows, which are an introduced bird, so I'm not exactly mourning the fact they're disappearing, but the sparrow population reflects the health of the ecosystem in the urban area and we're seeing this change, this shift this in the balance of our bird populations and we would never know that if it wasn't for people who were not ornithologists but bird lovers who shared the joy that they're seeing. And that's the thing about, for me, starting off at Seaford Swamp as this slightly nerdy kid who would rather sit and watch birds and play footy every day at lunchtime. Me reporting what I was seeing over the years actually had an impact. Me and other bird watchers in that area, that, that swamp that was prepared to be, like, there were plans to develop that, that wetland that I grew up next to. But because of our sightings, just doing the thing we loved, going out and watching these beautiful, magnificent creatures that come from across Australia and, and the other side of the world, and cataloguing it and sharing it with the researchers, we actually had that swamp recognised as a wetland of international significance under the Ramsar Treaty. And it's the only fully urban swamp in or wetland in Australia that is that. And so that's now protected and managed for those wildlife values. And it's because of, of kids like me and the local birdwatching community. And that, that's, that's a fabulous outcome that relies on monitoring that relies on people sharing their data. I'm taking a couple of things away from what you've just said. There are things you can do. What you plant in your garden or in your surrounds is important to the makeup of the birds that are going to be in your suburbs or in your yards. And also that observation, even if you're an amateur like me using eBird or iNaturalist or any of those apps, is actually potentially quite an important and valuable source of information for the protection of our loved areas. Anne Jones there, picking up on some suggestions for encouraging bird life in your own backyard. Whether it's an occasional hobby or more serious pursuit, bird watching can help provide crucial information for conservationists and insights into the overall health of our environment. How can citizen scientists help to gather this valuable information? That's one of the online audience questions which the panel will address shortly. But first, perhaps a trickier question. What is the lifespan of lorikeets? Birdwatcher Sean Dooley is the first to tackle that question. Parrots are long-lived birds, particularly the cockatoos, so I'm much more comfortable ground with with cockatoos which can live uh, 40 50 years yeah. in the wild and 90 years in captivity so i'm i'm going to go out on a limb that rainbow lorikeets that you know they exist on a diet of sugar really they they're just pepped up on 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 the nectar and they they just they live life to the full so i expect they're not going to be um, living for that long but but i expect it's still well over a decade i'd imagine yeah. 15 to 20 years now i reckon so it's i'm not a scientist so i can say this stuff and it doesn't <laughs> That would have been around my guess as well if they were, you know, in a yeah. good paddock, I suppose, of, you know, a <laughs> <Yes>. lolly shop. <laughs> okay, there's, there's questions actually really flowing in right now. How would you suggest everyone 
someone to get started with bird watching if they live in a city or metro area. Yeah, I want to hear about this too because I was thinking about how can I kind of engage more with birds. It's so hard when you live in a city, you're just not... I don't know, there's too much going on. It's really difficult to connect with nature and I just want to, yeah, I'd really? love to find a way to kind it's of... So much, it's so funny to me, right, because bird watching in the city is so much easier than anywhere else. <laughs> yeah, but surely you see all the same ones constantly. Or is that just a, uh, an assumption? I, th- I think uh, if you go to somewhere like in Sydney, Centennial Park, there's yeah. got Centennial. lots of wetlands yeah. and so you always see a good range of mm-hmm. water birds. That's a good way to get into it a bit and then you'll start to see there are patches of sort of native bush there so you'll start to see a few honey eaters and yellowtail black cockatoos mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and I think like everything you just start small and build up and get your confidence around you know those sorts of things then you're into being able to go you know into a national park and and always at the front of bird books there is a wonderful sort of silhouette type thing of the the shapes you know the size and the types of legs and bills and and yeah. and once you start thinking of the groups of birds and what they look like and then you can start to work out you know once you sort of hit hit the thorn bills or honey eaters that are really <laughs> tricky um that's when you start to sort of concentrate on some of those small diagnostic mm. features yeah, I, th- I think you, you need to find a basic unit yeah. of a bird and then you can compare. Once you know a, a couple, that's the thing. Ev- everybody, even, you know, even people who avowedly swear they weren't bird, bird lovers, everybody knows some birds, whether, mm. whether it's a magpie or an ibis or a, um, a kookaburra. So you can use that basic unit and then you start to say, well, is it smaller than the kookaburra or, or you know, longer build or that, that sort of thing. So... That's sort of the way I think you take it. The, the biggest problem, in, in a way, is you get excited. Somebody gets you a, a field guide, and like the, the yeah, latest great field guide, it's two and a half kilos <laughs> of, of birds and over 900 species. And you think, I think it's a honey eater, and then you see there's 75 to pick from. <laughs> so it, it can be overwhelming. So we, we've certainly thought about this a lot at, at BirdLife Australia, and one of the, the big engagement projects that we do every year is the Aussie Backyard Bird Count. And we, because we want to know about what's happening in in your backyard or in your local neighbourhood, because strangely enough at BirdLife Australia, our our mission is to to prevent extinctions of Australian birds. So we actually know far more about the birds you'll never see Mm. than we do about our common everyday birds. So one of the things we're trying to do is get people into this idea we, we call the bird count the gateway drug to serious bird monitoring. Um, <laughs> but so people can tell us what they're seeing in their backyard or their local park. And to facilitate that, we've created a really easy to use app, which you can use at any time of the year. Uh, you can't do the count except in bird week, which is in October. So we have that snapshot every year. But for the rest of the year, you can use the, how, the what bird is that sort of element. It's a little mini field guide and you don't need to know the name of the bird or know which page to go to. We've tried to rig it so that you can, you see a bird and you think, well, that's a black and white bird, but it's not a magpie. 
And if you don't know the name, and you can't look it up. So with that, you can put in the colours that you see and then also the size and the shape and then that will throw up some options of the likely birds that are in your area. So it, basically we're trying to encourage you to expand your knowledge in a manageable fashion that doesn't put you off. Amazing. That sounds really fun. The, the other thing I think that's certainly come into play probably in the last decade is photography and, mm. and apps like iNaturalist where you don't necessarily know what something is, but if you post a photo up there, then there are other people that can identify it. And the, the birds, I mean, things like fungi and that most people don't know, it's really useful. But even the birds are a good way of doing that. And the other thing is because binoculars are great, so get yourself a pair of binoculars. But the other tool that's useful is to have some sort of a camera. So if you only get that glimpse and you can take a photo, you can take it back and sort of expand bits of it mm. to see which, what bill colour it's got or... I suppose my counter to all of this is that the joy of bird watching for me doesn't come necessarily from identifying what I'm looking at. And so I can observe a bird and not know which type of thornbill it is um, fairly endlessly (laughs) and get quite a lot of enjoyment out of watching its behaviour. So I suppose, you know, Sean's been doing it since he was a nerdy kid, everyone. It's going to take you that many years to get up to that level. (laughs) So start, start by just enjoying being there. My tips, go somewhere, sit still and be quiet. Mm. I have heard that this is this, the same rule for all animal watching. Mm. All animal watching. The, le- the less you move, the more you see. And also the more your senses open up to mm. the world around you. So all of a sudden you will notice that there are tiny insects crawling around you and you'll see things on trunks of trees that you wouldn't have seen if you had have just been walking through an area. And that's the thing is like maybe bird watching is a gateway drug to sort of... <laughs> nature journaling or something like that. But look, we've got heaps of questions coming in. This is a ripper question. Anonymous, nice work. (laughs) What do we know about, insert X-Files music, the mysteries of bird migration? How do babies know where and when to fly? This is an age-old how question. This this is incredible. And with the migratory shorebirds in particular this still blows my mind, I only learnt this in the last few years, is a lot of the species that migrate from the Arctic Circle, so they, they spend most of their life in Australia on, on our shorelines and mudflats and estuaries and things. They migrate and breed in the Arctic Circle in Siberia, Alaska. Not only do they come back to the same estuary or, or wetland, the adult birds, because it's such a small window in which they can can breed up there before it gets too cold and all the insect life dies off, that they're feeding their young. The young basically look after themselves from birth. The adults breed, lay the eggs, the chicks hatch, they oversee the chicks for a little while, they molt into fresh feathers, uh, and then they fly, leaving all the juvenile birds up in the Arctic. Six weeks later, those juvenile birds have got big and fat enough to and are able to fly and they're able to make that migration, they undertake the migration, we think, with no guidance from any remaining adult birds and they end up in the same wetlands as their parents with no guidance, like 13,000 kilometres. And uh, Anonymous, we don't know how they do it. (laughs) It's incredible. I I was recently speaking with cuckoo experts for the program for What the Duck and... 
because the question came in from the audience, how does a cuckoo know how to cuckoo? And it turns out that almost all of our cuckoos as well, they're all migratory as well, mm. and they don't even get hatched by a cuckoo. Yeah. They get hatched by someone else entirely. How do they know how to cuckoo? Or to be that cuckoo. Yeah. Because <laughs> they, they, they usually, birds often get conditioned by their parents. So, so how do they not accidentally turn into a wren? Mm, you know, because, and speak like a wren. It's just incredible, still mysteries. Um, if there's anyone extremely rich in the audience, I'm sure there's several PhD funding <laughs> opportunities in that. We've got heaps of questions coming in. This one's a serious one. Can we get back from the devastating land clearing rates in both the country and the city? What is it going to take? Good politics, good decisions. Look, I mean, the, the big, and we saw the State of Environment report come out this year, and it was not good. And the one thing we know about the extinction crisis is, A, it's caused by one species, us, for the first time ever. Um, the second thing we know is the most important thing is habitat loss. So that's land clearing, that's clear felling of forests, that's destruction of wetlands, it's bottom trawling of marine areas and climate change impacts. So, but land clearing um, stopped many decades ago in South Australia. Queensland and New South Wales are the real hotspots of land clearing. And it's largely because we haven't got our laws quite right yet. And people are able to still land clear here. And, and most of that is happening out of our cities. There is certainly urban expansion going on. Mm. And it's not surprising that, you know, we have some real challenges around things like koalas because they're intersecting with where our cities are and, and where some of these sort of major sort of land clearing things mm. are happening. Mm. It's often the case that we seem to have the same habitat preferences, <laughs> you know, as so many of our species, because the shorebirds are the same. We love to build marinas, right? Mm. And that's almost always on shorebird habitat. Mm. I think, I think following on from what Richard's saying is that we need better laws, but we're not going to get the... We're, politicians aren't going to create those better laws and then, unless they're pushed. Mm. And we do have this rising environmental awareness and we've ha had it for a while and it ebbs and flows, but overall it, it is continuing that people are caring more. And I think one really fascinating thing I've seen out of the pandemic was that people reconnected or connected with nature for the first time. And I think that's one positive that, that's actually happened, particularly as someone who went through two years of lockdowns in Melbourne. I got to know my very local 5K zone that I was allowed in. But I, even I discovered, I'm always looking for birds every day, but I discovered new places where birds were and I just had new appreciation for the local green spaces. And that's what we saw. We saw it at BirdLife Australia. Within a week of the first lockdowns, we were being inundated, both in the reception area and, and in the media. People saying, what the hell's going on with the birds? Are they affected by COVID? They're going crazy outside my window. <laughs> and it was actually, when, when we broke it down, what behaviour they were seeing, it's like, no, the birds have always done that. It's just you've been too busy to notice. Yeah. And people began seeing these characters, these amazing characters we have in Australia's birds outside there, literally on their doorstep, and started to connect 
with them and they gave us joy in really bleak times. They're often the only bit of colour in our dreary days of lockdowns and, and there was this real groundswell and, and I think people, I think it's sort of washed through in, in the last election with, a, with the success of the Teals and increasing green vote and, and environment issues being on the, on the agenda but we do need to let let the people who make our decisions for us, make decisions for us, we need to let them know these are key issues to our well-being, to, to what we care about. Do you think we could just make Richard Minister for the Environment? Just, <laughs> yeah. just secretly. Yes. Uh, I'm not sure everybody would agree with you. <laughs> Worth a shot. Yeah. So, Charlotte, your writing, it's completely obvious to me the deep emotional connection that you have with the natural world. Um, with the book Migrations, you featured the birds, the Arctic terns. Did you get a response from your readers, similar to what Sean was saying? Did you get a response about their connection to the birds? Yeah, I've had so many people reach out to say that they've started noticing birds. And, and I think that really it speaks to the power of all arts in this fight. Mm. I think um, it's really important to kind of recognise that sometimes it can be very difficult to connect emotionally in a sustained way with this problem because it's so big, mm. um, it's so overwhelming. We, I think, automatically protect ourselves by switching off from it. Uh, but what you can do with the arts, with a piece of sculpture or a painting or a song or a book, is you can find a way to dig down into that really kind of deep, long-lasting emotional connection, which then galvanises people. It creates energy. Energy leads to action. And that's the way that we're going to be able to support and help our scientists who are doing the work. It's going to be a combined effort. And I think it's, it's very kind of special to, to have people reaching out to say that they've, you know, they stop more to notice the birds in the tree in the window. And, you know, if there's nothing else that's, that book has achieved, then <laughs> that, that's very kind of meaningful to me. There's a couple of questions for you from the audience, actually. One of them, why did you decide from JJ, thank you, why did you decide on birds for your book and not another migratory animal like whales? Oh, I love whales, and they're in my new book. <laughs> um, but, the, I mean, birds are so gorgeous and just... I think we have a really profound connection with birds. They're both alien to us. The way that they live and, and exist in the world is so at odds with how we exist in the world, and yet they're very, very familiar to us as well. You know, they're perhaps the wildest creature that we share spaces with on a day-to-day -day basis... And we imbue them with so much meaning. I think they are foretellers of destiny and death and love and life and war and all these kind of really powerful uh, motifs throughout history. And, and I, I was trying to think about why that might be. And I, and I think we can kind of get a sense from birds about their, their ancientness. You know, they've been here for so long it's a hundred million years, I think, that the modern... Bird... They were dinosaurs, so... Yeah. Even, even when I went to uni, people didn't think dinosaurs evolved into birds, but there's so much evidence yeah. now of feathered dinosaurs, so mm. they're absolutely... The T-Rex, right? Had feathers? Yeah, they're absolutely the modern encapsulation yeah. of the dinosaur. 
And that's really profound when we think about that kind of agelessness and the timelessness, and also the fact that it kind of means that they're the ultimate adapters and survivors to have survived everything and anything until us. And that, you know, when you think about it that way, it's, it's quite heartbreaking to think that we've come along and we're sort of threatening um, their existence in the way that nothing else ever has. And that really, I think, it calls to mind our responsibility um, in stepping up to, to save them. And, and it was, when I kind of think about the, uh, the power of birds, it just makes sense to write a, a journey story about them, one that, you know, is about redemption and the rediscovery of hope. They're such creatures of hope, I think. Mm. Yeah, and do have a hanky ready. It cleared the <laughs> sinuses out for me. It was a good cry that I had. Um, and on the topic of crying, I actually was reflecting on um, my interactions with both Sean and Richard, and I think I both made you cry <laughs> when we've been out filming. And f- for radio, Richard, I remember sitting at the mouth of the Murray there mm. and talking to you about birds, and it was obvious your connection... I mean, you've spent literally 45 years in a tiny little tin plane, you know, doing this. Um, How do you balance that with the rational stuff that you've got to have as a scientist? You've got to have this rational, you know, divorced from emotion side. Good question. Part of it is, I think, being able to think that this is the the mode of work that I can do. I have a passion for these animals, but I'm also capable of sort of compartmentalising how many pelicans there are or how many ibis there are or pink-eared ducks or my favourite. Um, but I'm all, what I really like doing is being able to switch off and going like everybody on this panel and in the audience and just being able to sit somewhere and appreciate and listen and just wonder at not just the birds, but the whole of these ecosystems that make up the complexity of the natural world out there, that, you know, we've got a great responsibility, not just for us, but for those who come after us, to look after and and make sure it's still there for them to appreciate the way we have. Mm. Now, on the topic of handing over the ecosystem, Leon says, I'm 10 years old, I spend most of my spare time on bird photography. How can I use my Instagram hobby to help conservation, not just build followers and likes? So, Thanks, mate. I think that adding your photos to those citizen science apps for a start would probably be the easiest way of converting iNaturalist. Yeah. And, you know, the BirdLife app. I don't know if you can upload photos, but iNaturalist, I think, is probably the, the best sort of global app where you just take a photo, records where you took the photo, and then it just adds to the data that's there about what animals Mm. and plants and other organisms there are out Mm. there. Yeah. So when a scientist is doing a project on crimson rosellas and they type in crimson rosellas, it will come up with your photo, Leon. That's the idea. So that would be the first way. Finally, the question three bird lovers found the most difficult to answer. What is your favourite bird? Well, not so difficult for author Charlotte McConaughey. Her pick was the Arctic Turn, the inspiration for her novel Migrations. So it's a long-haul flight bird, and I love it because... I mean, it was very hard to choose a favourite bird. There's so many fabulous birds, but 
I thought I'd go for this one because I you know, probably know a little bit more about it than any other bird, which is not to say I know very much, but <laughs> it is extraordinary because it has the longest migration of any animal in, in the world. And it flies from the Arctic to the Antarctic and back again in a year. And so over the course of its roughly 30-year lifespan, it means that it will fly the equivalent of to the moon and back three times. <laughs> and as a storyteller and a writer, the romance and the beauty of that was just, mm. uh, you know, irresistible. It's so gorgeous. Uh, but what also struck me was that it's a flight that's becoming more and more difficult every year that they do it because of habitat loss. You know, we're making it harder for them and yet they still keep doing it and it's just such an act of courage and willpower and I find them incredibly beautiful. <laughs> yeah, they're moving to see any of these long-haul migratory birds, I still get moved yes. to tears. Every time I see them, no matter which of the birds yeah. they are, they're just phenomenal. Yeah, no, that's a pretty good bird, but <laughs> it's interesting because um, the others didn't pick that one. <laughs> Sean Dooley? Uh, the Regent Honeyeater, uh, the first colonists called it the warty-faced honeyeater, and it's been <laughs> battling an image problem ever since. Um, but these are magnificent birds, like in, in their own right. They're, th this is a bird, you talk about crying, this is a bird that made me cry when I was doing my big twitch because uh, trying to see as many, all the Australian birds in one year. And it was the drought year, the middle of the millennium drought, these birds are one of the wanderers that Richard talked about. Not a water bird wanderer, but they, they wander about looking for the, the flowering eucalypts. Uh, and they feed in the blossom of the ironbarks in particular, but also yellow gums and other big flowering trees, which we've cleared the best ones of. And these are almost like the passenger pigeon of Australia. They used to roam in huge flocks. They were pests. They would turn up in towns like Dubbo and raid people's orchards. And people really didn't like them because they, they would eat all the fruit. But they're, in that year, in that drought year, I could not find a Regent honeyeater because none of the trees flowered because of the drought. Mm. And every time I heard about one, I was on another part of the continent and I'd race over and they'd be gone. In fact, that year, most Regent honeyeater sightings were from the central coast in people's backyards, which was no good to me. I was in Alice Springs at the time. When I finally did see one in the Capity Valley about two, three hours west of here in Sydney, I had been looking for a couple of days and then right on, right on sunset, there was a male bird that popped up they were feeding on the mistletoe of the river oaks, the river she-oaks, the only plant that was flowering. And they were surviving there. And just as I thought I wasn't going to see this bird, it popped up and sang. The, the light of the, um, of the sinking sun of that beautiful central west area, it, it caught that glorious yellow that you can see on the undertail and the underwings. And it's like distilled Australian sunshine. It just radiated this, this incredible yellow. And knowing that this was one of the last few hundred birds of this species, which once roamed in flocks of thousands... It was one of the most moving things I've ever experienced in, in all my years of bird watching, And I've had the privilege of holding one, uh, working with our BirdLife Woodlands team as we try and um, catch them and tag them and work out where they go. And I've been involved in captive releases with Taronga Zoo, um, who've bred them up. And 
release them into the bush and it's like releasing sunshine. And to see that many birds, one time there was 30 or 40 birds released at once and to see that burst of yellow through, through the bush was just a sight that I hope we will continue to see. Now, Sean Dooley is a man of many words, couldn't pick one bird either. He wanted this one as well, (laughs) the grey falcon. Now, look, we're running out of time, Sean, so keep this one short. This is a bird that doesn't actually exist. Um, This was a bird on my big twitch. People told me where to go see this rare desert falcon. And I went to 12 dead cert sites. I was told you can't miss it. And right across the deserts, and I did not see it until about six weeks ago, I finally got back into the desert and this, I, I decided because I couldn't see it, it therefore didn't exist. And it was a myth, completely mythological bird, but they now nest in uh, communications towers. They build their nests. And I was given the location of a communications tower on the Birdsville track and we got there and the tower didn't exist. <laughs> it was a mythological tower for a mythological bird. But eventually, about two hours, three, actually about five hours out of Mount Isa, I finally caught up with the bird. What about you, Richard? The pink-eared duck. I guess this is, and I like Charlotte and probably Sean, it's very hard to come up with a favourite bird, but this epitomises to me Australia. This is absolutely an inland water bird and that paradox of desert and water. And it's got these, this bill that's sort of spatulate, it's a specialist invertebrate feeder. It just feeds on microscopic crustaceans and it goes along like a vacuum cleaner and, and actually <laughs> siphons up water and you can see the water coming out of it, the sides of its bills where it has these really fine hairs that it catches the plankton in mm. and it just goes round and round and round. And when, one thing I don't think has ever been written, but I've actually seen two of these together and from my sort of chemistry days, you know how you had those centrifuges that go round and round and concentrate things? These two birds were going round with their bills in the water like this, concentrating all the plankton so they could maximise the amount of plankton that they, they got. But I guess, as if that's not enough, they're incredibly beautiful and, and really there's nothing in the duck world that looks quite like these animals. And then if you're camping at night... Um, out in the outback, there's nothing more magical than hearing flocks of these go over you because they travel at night and they twitter to each other as they go past. They're an amazing, amazing bird. Richard Kingsford, bird lover and director of the Centre for Ecosystem Science at the University of New South Wales, Sydney. You also heard from Sean Dooley, writer, conservationist and bird watcher, Charlotte McConaughey, author and host Anne Jones, presenter of ABC RN's What the Duck Nature Show. That discussion was presented by the University of New South Wales Centre for Ideas and you can find more of their talks on their podcast channel. The link is on our website. And if all this talk about birds has you reaching for the binoculars, don't forget you can participate in BirdLife Australia's annual Aussie Bird Count. It's just around the corner during National Bird Week in October. Head to aussiebirdcount.org.au for more information. I'm Paul Barclay. Thanks for listening. Bye for now. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.